A few days ago, I ordered jeans online. I didn't give much thought to this purchase. I was browsing the web. I saw a pair of jeans. They looked good. I clicked on them and I bought them. A few hours later, I received an email. How likely would it be that I would recommend these jeans to a colleague? And below that was a 1 to 10 scale, from 1 to 10. How should I answer that question? What are the values that I should place behind my numerical analysis? Is it the availability of product? Is it the speediness of the website load? Is it how I feel at that particular moment, the weather outside? Also, remember, I haven't received these jeans yet. It's only been a few hours, so I have no idea what they look like, whether their representation online matches what the reality of the jeans was. I don't know if the shipping was fast or slow. I don't really know very much about any of this, but it's asking me to make a decision. It's also asking, how likely would it be that I would recommend these jeans to a colleague? And so I start thinking, which of my colleagues do I discuss jeans with? And are their tastes the same as mine? And do I like this colleague? Am I trying to, de to deceive them and give them bad jeans? What am I ranking the product on? Is it design? Is it fit? Is it durability? The scale is meaningless, one to 10. And the ask is really unclear but the feedback is immediate and permanent. But so much can change. What if my taste in apparel goes through a shift? What if I start liking my colleague more or less? What if my feelings change when I actually receive the product? We deal with an absolutely overwhelming amount of request for consumer feedback. Where does it go? What does it do? And how does it really affect the way that companies act? Let's pull apart the prevalence of consumer feedback and let's try to understand what makes it go right, what makes it go wrong, what makes it valuable, and what makes it work. This is Parallax. I take a lot of Ubers. I am constantly in someone else's car. And I don't know these people, and they don't know me. Our brief interaction, in a very specific sense, is the only interaction we have, have had, and potentially ever will have. 
but based on that interaction, we're both asked to judge each other. Now, sometimes I'm a great customer. I arrive in the car, I'm smiling, I am easily found, I have good conversation pieces. But occasionally, I'm not so good a customer. I'm tired, I'm confused, I'm on my phone, I don't interact or I interact too much. Um, I'm. There's a variety of things that can go right or go wrong. On the driver's side as well, I've had some really great drivers, people who have really helped me out in my daily activities. I've also had drivers who are less so. Drivers who, for whatever reason, have either not jived with me interpersonally or who I felt are not a good driver, using my personal beliefs on what a good driver is or is not. It goes both ways. And Uberland to me is very interesting because in Uber, everyone is amazing. If you get below a four out of five score on the rider or the passenger side, you're kicked off the platform. You can't ride with them ever again. So everyone's incentivized to try to keep their score as good as possible. It's a really smart system. And it's the idea that by using kind of the crowd will weed out people on either side, on the passenger or on the driver's side, who are not acting in a way that is good for our system. But here's the thing. In a world where everyone is batting over 80%, what does it mean to get a 4.1? In a five-point scale, a 4.1 is 82%. That's a pretty decent mark. If you were in a high school and you got that mark on an exam, you'd be well on your way to applying to a pretty decent university. However, in Uber, a 4.1 means that you are arguably one of the worst humans who is allowed to use that service. It means that you are 0.1 point away from being thrown off the service and never allowed to use it again, either as a driver or a passenger. It's a really distorted way of seeing the world. Everyone is amazing. And it's led to some changes in behavior that we, we probably wouldn't do normally if we weren't constantly being judged. So the classic Uber driver, who is a good driver, will offer you water, or a charger, or a guidebook, or some light conversation, or offer to turn the radio down or the heat up. I've even seen pamphlets on the back of seats saying, was everything okay? I really want your five-star score. Totally cool, I, I, I get it. And I often, not often, I almost always give a five-star score, but a five out of five means that everything is perfect. And is it perfect? Let's assume yes, but it's very difficult to dimensionalize the differences in every single interaction you have 
when everyone's judging everyone constantly and everyone's gaming the system to try to get their score as high as possible all the time. My assumption is that almost every score for an Uber ride is either a 5 or a 1. And I, I, I don't know this for a fact. It could be completely made up. But I think that the, uh, the, the standard approach to Uber is if it's good, you give a 5. If it's not good, you give a 1. And there's, there's very little in between. And yes, they do ask you to dimensionalize the elements of what you found good or bad about each ride. But in the end, this constant feedback request loop at such a fast pace ends up becoming meaningless. Um, I, I can't imagine how many Uber rides I've taken this year. And I don't remember the details of any particular one of them. But I think I know that almost all the scores I've given are fives and maybe one or two ones for rides that were really bad. Like I had a driver fall asleep once at the wheel. Um, if the car catches on fire, you get a one. But otherwise than that, you're pretty much guaranteed a five unless something really bad happens. I think it's a good system overall. I think that the idea of weeding out all the people who are even remotely questionable is probably a good system. But because of that system, all of the numbers, aside from like the 4.99s and the 4.1s, really become meaningless. What are the factors that cause you to give someone a good or a bad score? Is it based on their communication? Is it based on their driving ability? Is it based on the way they look or act? Is it based on the greeting they give you? Is it based on the quality of the bottled water that is being offered to you? These are not standard. They're not standardized items. And also, how often do I forget to even leave a score at all? Or how often do I just quickly tap one of the numbers given to me just because it's a quick, thoughtless process? The prevalence of consumer feedback in this situation might not be working. Whenever I go to the bank for anything, I end up getting barraged with a litany of questions about my interaction. I could be going to the teller to get my bank balance, and two days later I'll get an anonymized phone call asking for my consumer feedback on my recent interaction with the bank. If I go on mobile banking, I'll get an email asking about my, my experience. Generally, these interactions and experiences are judged by a simple Likert scale, a 1 to 5 scale. Um, how how uh, friendly was the teller? Unfriendly? Somewhat friendly? Neither friendly nor non-friendly? Very friendly? Exceptionally friendly? These kind of scales and these kind of rankings don't make much sense to me. Because... Again, the comparative set is compared to all the interactions you've had with any teller at any point in time. You could have had a, a, a slew of terrible interactions, and this 
particularly bad interaction might have been the best one you've ever had and so you might give that interaction a five but regardless you're asked these questions so many times that they end up having almost no meaning in terms of uh, the the feedback that is that is trying to be gained by the uh, by the researcher at the bank trying to gauge your reaction I approach these kind of curiously because I'm always very conscious that my simple answer on a very quick test of my um, initial reaction to an experience might end up giving someone who is employed by the bank a very, very bad day in terms of their employment. I mean, what if I am randomly clicking ones and twos on surveys on the phone or on email and that affects someone's uh, job score and they get fired because of it or they get or or on the flip side if they get promoted because of it because I'm aware of the consequence I might be much more reserved in my reactions it's also the frequency every single interaction I do with the bank leads me to get a request for feedback. Who's reading this? Who actually sees each individual answer along the way? Is it a human? Is it a program that just aggregates all of the information from all of the consumers and leads to decisions along the way? I have no idea. This is obviously not limited to banks. The telephone company, every time I call for help, I get a request for a consumer survey at the end where I'm clicking between one and five on a range of really simple questions. Um, and I'm always worried that my responses are going to either help or hurt the, the person at the call center who is helping me on whatever task they were helping me with. The airlines are notorious for doing this as well. Whenever I take a flight, a day or two later, I get a call or I get a text or I get a email asking me about my experience on that particular flight. And it asks a range of feedback items that I don't really remember, to be honest. I don't remember how tight the seatbelt was. I don't remember the temperature of coffee. And I can't think of anyone who can. Asking for feedback has become commonplace. And that's not a bad thing. How many of us will not choose a restaurant because of its Yelp score? Or how many of us will not go to a hotel because it doesn't rank in the top X number on TripAdvisor? In broad strokes, this has helped consumers out. Industries are terrified to get bad reviews, and so they make sure they maximize all the good elements of their business to make the experience as perfect as it possibly can be for their future customers. For each person, though, this eliminates the element of potential surprise, both in a negative and a positive sense. 
You walk into a restaurant knowing what to expect. You walk into a hotel knowing what to expect. And because of that, you're not going to be either negatively or positively surprised. Often the expectation can distort reality. There's a whole industry around this. There are companies that only exist to get your feedback. Trustpilot will allow anyone to submit feedback on a whole range of products and services that they've experienced. But their real business is in actually getting companies who get feedback from their consumers to control their reputation online. Businesses can opt in and selectively send feedback requests to only their best customers, to people who they know will give them a good review. They can display these customers as verified purchases. They also allow companies to selectively display the feedback that they receive. It's an interesting way of letting companies put their best foot forward. So what does someone do when they get a consistent stream of negative feedback? The review game works both ways. Sometimes businesses find themselves at the very bottom end within their category. There's one particular business I'm thinking of um, the business runs essentially as a scam, but they always get bad reviews because people are upset about the way their business operates. Totally fair. This is a particularly unscrupulous bunch of people who work in the appliance repair business. So they have a lot of customers who are upset and they all write negative reviews and they all get them low rankings on all of the indexes. So on the home review sites, on Yelp, on Google. And so if you look them up, you're going to find loads of bad press about this company. What they've done is they decided, we're just going to change our name entirely to a different name for our business. And then people won't find these bad reviews. And even though people have posted things online that link their new name to their old name, what they've done is they spend a lot of money on SEO, making sure that only what they want to be seen is seen. They've also put reviews that they probably wrote themselves in the same format with the same star system that are glowingly positive on their new website. The thought here is that people won't look too deeply into the data. They're counting that the average consumer will only look a few pages into the data, three or four pages, see a couple of stars they like, a couple of stars that seem somewhat questionable but not that bad, and then go on and make their purchase. Our fundamental reliance on reviews has allowed the system to become gamed. Have you ever tried creating a survey and sending it out to a panel that you find through the internet? It's an incredibly frustrating sport. You get people making up aliases and names, none of which I can even say without being offensive. You get 
a sh the sheer number of false answers that you get is astronomical. It's people leaning on keys to fill in open ends. It's people who fill out the survey in 10 seconds. It's, it's a constant barrage of unreliable and unchecked data. Sure, there are ways you can control this. And the survey companies are pretty good at having a basic level of threat analysis. So they'll randomize the order. They'll create elimination questions. They'll put in a question that has four possible answers. And in the question itself, it says, we're just checking to make sure if you're reading. So if you are, please answer pineapple. And you have to pick pineapple. They'll limit the survey length. They'll suggest ways to tell people who are trying to field surveys ways to counter the, the devil they know is there. They use AI to ensure adherence to a specific format. There are lots of ways they can try to make surveys better and to make their panels better. But in the end, they're always playing catch up and they're always trying their hardest to beat the people who are trying to fill out as many surveys as possible in as little time as possible for whatever payment they get. So regarding customer feedback, how much can you actually learn from customers in these situations? There are two elements. There's being open to receiving feedback, which is an incredibly important element of any business. Uh, be, be always listening to your customers. But then there's soliciting feedback, asking your customers, hey, what do you think? Hey, what do you think? Please tell me, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? There's no real value in being annoying to your customers. They've been nice enough to give you their business. Now leave them alone. When you're actually out there seeking feedback from your customers, you have to balance open ends versus numerical scales. Numerical scales are very easy to complete and you'll get lots of, of, of data back. But it doesn't really tell you that much. Open ends will tell you considerably more, but you'll get a much lower return rate. And when you ask people to fill in feedback or when you open yourself up to receiving feedback, it can often be overwhelmingly negative. People like to complain. It's much easier to write a slew of negative things than it is to just put a happy face. People get more descriptive when they're negative. People get more emotional. They get more passionate. The most important question in the end is, are you making your customers feel valued or worthless by asking them for feedback? There's more than one way to look at the story. Parallax is 
is produced by TPG Media with special assistance from the world we live in. Everything is opinion, nothing is fact. Our theme music is by 3999. My name is Daniel Burkle.